Our society is notorious for separating elderly people from other age groups. This can have devastating effects on mental health, physical health, cultural continuity, and more. One solution is to adopt an intergenerational approach, which focuses on the myriad benefits of engagement across generations. I'm Megan Stromberg, Editor-in-Chief of the American Planning Association. On this episode of the APA podcast, I'm talking with Matt Kaplan, Professor of Intergenerational Programs and Aging at Penn State University. I'll let Matt explain a bit more about what that is exactly. So Matt, thank you so much for making time to join us. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. Uh, Sure, thank you, Megan. Um, Well, I'm on the faculty um, at Penn State University in the Social Science Department of the College of Ag Sciences, um, Agricultural, Economics, Sociology, and Education. And uh, my work is around the, the broader area of intergenerational programs and aging. So I do research with that and develop um, outreach education uh, programs based on new interventions that we develop, uh, Mm -hmm. looking at intergenerational work in varied contexts, including uh, in, uh, I guess, caregiving, early childhood development, um, elder care, uh, planning communities, envisioning it's in an intergenerational framework. So I'm kind of an intergenerational specialist. Okay. I work with Extension as well, Penn State Extension. Um, which is a very powerful outreach system in the country. Can you help us understand what an intergenerational specialist does? Ah, that's a good question. (laughs) Um, Well, um, the answer is packed into the word. The part that's key is inter. It's looking at ways in which um, different generations interact. So some people study that. And some people focus on finding ways in which uh, people across generations are isolated and can benefit from engagement across generations. Mm -hmm. So in terms of planning, um, we could uh, distinguish between multi-generational planning and Mm -hmm. environments and intergenerational planning and environments. Uh, So multi-generational would just mean um, more than one generation is there. And there are measures in place uh, to enable uh, the inhabitants or visitors of that space to access the place, to be there, to be comfortable. And the intergenerational orientation or or perspective uh, is really to figure out ways to develop activities, programs, policies, uh, and place the design Mm -hmm. of the environment to enable the generations to engage one another in different ways, depending on what kind of setting it is. If it's a school or an educational setting, it would have more of a a learning framework, but if it's a caregiving setting, it would be more along the lines of care. So intergenerational work Mm -hmm. is sort of a a way to accomplish, uh, help settings be effective in what their objectives are. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like place is a part of it, but it's not the only aspect of intergenerational programs. Is that right? There's more to it? Uh, Yes. So um, I like to summarize the intergenerational field uh, with five letters, P, 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 and V. So um, to develop a really fantastic intergenerational setting um, where people fluidly can find each other, interact, and uh, and learn together, play together, and so on, um, it helps to have the first P is program. 
So intergenerational programs and activities. So um, when the intergenerational field started over 30 years ago, uh, where we started thinking it was a distinct field, people focused on the engagement and curriculum and so on. Um, and then increasingly, um, it was realized that um, what we're missing is understanding of actually the, the physical environment. So we started getting architects and landscape uh, planners, designers uh, engaged. So starting to realize uh, that uh, we really want to align the program with the design of the place. So it's program, policy, place, uh, partnerships, because you have to work in an interdisciplinary way. Oh, I think I missed process in the PPPVC. Sorry, it should be five Ps. Uh, so participatory process, people will say what they need and so on. And uh, the V is values, which may come up later in our talk, but it really depends on what we're trying to accomplish in a setting. Is it to keep people safe? Is it to help them find ways to uh, live healthier, be more active, learn something, or create a community that works better? So P, 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 V. V. <laughs> Got it. Um, we started this conversation in part because APA is interested in some planning interventions and planning policies related to aging. And intergenerational programming sounds like a really interesting approach to aging, of course, because it's not focused on just that one demographic, but rather um, multiple groups interacting. Are aging Americans, are aging people um, the biggest sort of constituent for this kind of work? Well, uh, the intergenerational framework uh, basically takes a lifespan perspective. So we look at how people um, go through life stages and experience their communities and their lives over a course of time. And we also zero in on certain points where there are certain vulnerabilities and capacities and needs and so on. So uh, it's not any one age group per se, mm -hmm. but, um, but there is, I guess, a, uh, an emphasis on looking at the bookend generations, mm -hmm. uh, but not, not uh, excluding the generations in the middle. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so young people, for instance, uh, are need in need of care, they're developing, they're curious, they want to discover. So um, not, they don't always have those kinds of opportunities to do so or um, people who care about them to help nurture their development mm -hmm. um, and give them opportunities to explore and accomplish. Uh, so intergenerational work and that and early childhood education and, and youth development is key. Um, and also there's a ton written in, in uh, aging and gerontology on uh, how uh, what's going on in terms of a person's life as they age. Uh, in terms of things like uh, generativity, uh, the need to, the desire to leave a legacy, people wanting to give back, wanting to connect, wanting to be meaningful. Um, so that's really uh, emphasizing, that's a th one theme in gerontology is emphasizing uh, the assets and creating opportunities to give back. And there's some really good organizations that enable that, um, like Generations United, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, national organization. And then um, there are also um, uh, vulnerabilities that grow as, you, as one ages. Mm -hmm. So uh, needing support. Um, so designing, let's say, elder care type settings uh, where uh, uh, people can find that support and care, but in, in a way that does not disengage them. 
from the rest of the world. So I like to talk about like schools without walls and assisted living facilities without walls. So connecting with the community across with different groups across ages uh, to embrace in ways that enable people to do really cool things, to try new things and make new friends and expand their social circles, which is really key in the field of aging because we know it's social isolation and loneliness is, uh, is a terrible uh, scourge, particularly during these uh, pandemic times. Can you think of a place or an example of an intergenerational community that works well that our listeners might want to look at in their own time? Right. Oh, my gosh. Um, There's so many. And uh, it's not like yes or no. You do it and then you're in Shangri-La. It's sort of like a challenge that all, all, all communities uh, should be embracing, and many do. So the que- questions like, um, is the community designed to be age-friendly, right? So it's more of a multi-generational framework. Is it child and youth-friendly? And is it intergenerationally enriched? So are there opportunities for people to connect and, and be together uh, learn together, care for one another? Is it a coherent community? Are there places that they can go uh, and be that people feel comfortable and can actually uh, connect uh, with meaningful programs and opportunities, sometimes formal interactions and sometimes informal? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, so there are many examples of, uh, of uh, communities that do that have really quite amazing practices uh, that really work, that spark interest and in intergenerational engagement. For example, one, one that just comes to my mind uh, is in Alicante, Spain. Uh, they have a multi-generational housing project. So, uh, so you have uh, young families, you have older adults uh, who t- tend to live alone, you have young professionals. And uh, it's this beautiful center. They have a, a garden, a roof garden, places to get together, gather and eat meals. Um, and they've, it's not only creating a, a setting like a housing place, but um, uh, also uh, finding ways that are culturally significant to spark engagement and interaction. So sometimes it could be just something very little and simple. Because at first when they built this, it looked beautiful, but um, people weren't really gelling. So they seized upon the idea of giving everybody some plants in front of their door. And that gave everybody an excuse to knock on the door and talk about the plant in front of your door. So, and these are, these are some of the, um, I guess, a way of thinking and a way of working process. And uh, the plants were really huge. And another mm-hmm. example uh, is an uh, uh, assisted living facility in Japan. They came up with like what I call the milk and cookie approach. <laughs> so it's ingenious. Who could think about this other than the people who live there? So the people in the small assisted living retirement community facility, um, they were feeling that they were a little bit isolated and unfortunately seemingly irrelevant to the young people's lives, particularly because they walked to get to school, they had to walk around their facility. So they came up with the strategy to open the front door and in the vestibule where there's like a piano on top of it, they put milk and cookies. (laughs) So, and then uh, one kid noticed it told his friends, got enough courage, they came in and said, oh, I see you have milk and cookies. And the seniors said, yeah, we put them out for you. Then the seniors, the kids would take, started taking a shortcut to and from school 
And then they would enjoy the milk cookies. And by the way, while they're there, they start talking, hanging out together, getting to know each other. And you and I visited this uh, <laughs> when I was there. And you know, you see people like chatting, laughing. You see kids uh, doing pounding shoulders, like massage on the seniors. Awesome. I mean, it's like really happening. And the seniors, it was like an upscale place. They had a pool. They opened the pool up to the kids and the families in the community. Mm-hmm. So it's the opposite of a retirement community on the hills away from everyone. So it's not like retirement away. It's a way, it's a way to continue engagement in the community, which we know is important for, for mental health, cultural continuity, uh, avoiding brain drain when people retire. So people want to be engaged. So intergenerational mindset is really uh, helpful in coming up with strategies, but not legislating strategies. So it's a way of working with people to find out a way that sparks what they what would help them connect. Yeah, and it sounds like some of it is some of it is um, intentional planning can be a part of it, but some of it is just seeing and seizing opportunities when they arise. So there's an organic piece too. Right, that's like. the organic piece. Now there there is some really strong policy work that could be done. Like in Germany, they have this um, this ministry supported, the Federal Ministry of Family, Elderly, Women, and Youth. Uh, in 2006, they launched the Multi-Generational Houses uh, Program. So it's a policy which has uh, led to over 400 multi-service centers getting funding to hire an intergenerational coordinator uh, to actually facilitate intergenerational engagement in these multi-service uh, community centers, which would mean like, uh, for instance, uh, let's say they have photography for children, childcare, and then exercise for older adults. Everything's usually age segregated. At any rate, so you go there and you see like intergenerational theater, you see intergenerational community walks, you see all sorts of engagement. So that, that's a strong policy saying this is really important to who we are and how we want our communities to evolve. And to think that they've established like over 400 of these centers with, this, uh, with evidence about how this slight, almost a guerrilla strategy to turn a multi-generational center into an intergenerational center. Just there are multi-million dollar investments for these centers and for like $50,000 each, they could actually facilitate a lot more engagement in life, bringing families in. People can uh, can feel good about a whole family spending time. You don't have to send your kid to some center or a senior to a different center and they don't see each other. They can actually do things together, which is what people really want. We're at a particular time in our society right now, right? We've got um, what some people are calling the triple crises of the pandemic and um social inequality and a troubled economy. And I'm wondering how some of those challenges affect your work in intergenerational programming. Well, the challenge um, of the pandemic, COVID-19, that one's been uh, particularly painful because um, intergenerational people are so good at designing um, ways to bring people together. So all of a sudden, you have this, uh, this blanket of uh, just uh, inhibiting people getting together in physical space. So uh, we've had to be really creative and work in a transdisciplinary way to come up with ways to bring people together while maintaining physical distance. 
so um, uh, certainly using technology, so high-tech kind of strategies so people can be there uh, and connect with the virtual environment. But even there, which sounds like a panacea, that's not because uh, many people, uh, particularly older people who may be isolated uh, physically and socially, uh, have issues with the hardware, software. So it's like, it's almost like a paradox. So we're looking at uh, high-tech and low-tech strategies to connect people. So for instance, in some care communities, uh, which are getting particularly hit very hard uh, by the pandemic, they're coming out, they're coming with ways to make extra use of community rooms, which have huge windows and, and glass doors to see people from the outside and engage and interact with people, family members, youth on the other side of the glass. I've seen uh, some pictures of people playing uh, tic-tac-toe, you know, with tape. Um, I think uh, some people are talking about putting up walkie-talkies so they could talk, like low-tech. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it's been, uh, it's been very challenging. And also in designing space, I think um, I have been challenged and my colleagues as well to think differently about the physical environment. It's not just a, a vessel for people to get together, but there are um, certain um, objects that have symbolic value of memory and engagement, like receiving uh, gifts, like uh, scrapbooks, family photos, um, mementos on the wall, uh, and even using technology to hear voices of family members and connect in that way. Um, and even outdoor spaces to, uh, to create um, settings where people can learn about history and learn about the relevance of history. Um, it could be disasters like uh, some flood or mm -hmm. pandemic, a museum mm -hmm. around that or some uh, um, terrible thing in terms of equity uh, and uh, racial justice, you know, like the Oklahoma uh, riots and so on. So there are museums and ways to make those places relevant. So people can come together or come with families or even come on their own and understand uh, the importance of the past, learning from the past. And usually um, some of the docents are older adults who have, uh, are closer to personal experience to those times. So it's not just the vessel, the physical environment, but it's understanding the social, socio-historical uh, and psychological context of that environment and the embedded meanings that it has for helping us understanding, understand how we're all in it together. And we learn about the past and then we start doing community visioning type projects. Uh, and usually I, I bring people on walking tours and have future festivals and so on, but we can't do that. So one project we did recently uh, with Susquehanna, Susquehanna Depot uh, in the Northeast side, Susquehanna County in Pennsylvania called it One Community, Many Generations, working with Penn State Extension uh, and groups in Susquehanna, the Development Association. Uh, and instead of bringing people together to share their views across generations and come up with strategies to uh, create more uh, intergenerationally enriched settings, uh, we developed a survey which people could do by their phone. And, uh, and then we looked, then we had meetings online, Zoom, with multi-generational groups of people. We went over responses and we highlighted um, how different generations would uh, respond to certain items, like what do you think is missing from this community? What can be better? What would you like to see? And uh, we found a few items that older adults and young 
people had in common. So we, uh, and now they're developing uh, action projects based on those things. So for instance, everybody wanted more benches. And then uh, usually people say, yeah, benches, if you just have like some one, part, one planner thinking, I have a good idea for benches, we'll put them over here. People said, no, we want the benches next to activity hubs, intergenerational activity hubs, and also next to shopping downtown so people can be there and be uh, clientele for the different businesses. Um, so we're trying to get around the in-person stuff, but yet connect people as best we can. Um, but it's been very, very challenging. It sounds like it's been challenging, but at the same time, it's really encouraging to hear how you're able to move forward to realize some of these plans and gather feedback from community members so that you can create a vision for the community that they want and need. Right. And one other example, um, I heard of uh, this really cool uh, project. Um, it's a meal delivery project uh, done by uh, folks in uh, Dane County, Madison, Wisconsin. So they can't actually have people coming inside, like high school youth doing service projects, interviewing the seniors. So we can't do that in COVID. But they left bird seed and, and uh, bird watching information sheets with the seniors, and they would get a great meal and a new hobby. So they look at the sheets and then they go outside. Now, remember, we're socially, physically distanced, but they have this new hobby. They're going outside, looking at birds. First of all, they feed them. They identify them and they're checking them out. They're learning. And other people are saying, what are you doing? So they say, oh yeah, I'm doing this. Oh, can I, can I join you? Can I sit over here six feet away from you? And then all of a sudden they find out about other bird watchers and they're not as isolated, which is the terrible thing we're all trying to figure out how to reduce. So they become less socially isolated, have more civic engagement interest, uh, have skills, meeting people. And then that the world of natural consequences there takes over. We don't have to do these artificial intergenerational programs uh, to, to zero in on somebody who's isolated and uncomfortable about answering the door because they now have a hobby. Such a simple uh, intervention. Now think about what that means. Meal delivery, usually you think about nutrition educators and, and specialists who know how to give healthy meals, but then you also, it crosses the boundary to recreation and lifestyles and so on. Um, I'd like to just uh, share another example of a particularly uh, impressive intergenerational setting. Great. Okay, this is in New York City, where I was born and bred. Um, Isabella Geriatric Center. They have a project called NOISE, N-O-I-S-E-E, -E, Naturally Occurring Interactions in a Shared Environment Every Day. So they uh, it's a large campus. They have senior housing uh, facilities, 705 uh, bed, long-term care facility, uh, over 10 community-based programs. And they have an early childhood program on the campus. So they have children running around and being around. They have families, visitors, and staff. So this setting is quite uh, interesting. If you go there, and I did go there, I took a group of people on a study tour from Japan <laughs> to look at this. The whole campus is like a classroom for the children. So when I came, we were just walking, we were having a meal. There are kids here, seniors there. They're laughing and talking a bit. Then we walked into the, the entranceway where the welcoming person is. There's this woman sitting on a high chair who answers the phones. And then there's a little kid climbing up her leg. 
you know, and just, I mean, you wonder where's the parent or whatever. And there's some, you know, staff people and kids around. The kid climbs up on her leg, crawls into her lap, and she says, oh, you again. And then the kid points to the phone. Oh, you want to play phone? Okay, good. And meanwhile, she's doing her job as like a switchboard operator, and the kid is enjoying it. So love it. that's really, I think, gold standard. Naturalizing a way that people can care for and be cared by others and mm-hmm. feel relevant, feel connected. It's, it's about community. The kid's also learning about uh, geriatric walkers and wheelchairs as they meet other people. And the older adults, I mean, there's a therapeutic recreation plan, you know, but it's not like therapy. You get a case number. It's like, be here, mm-hmm. <laughs> be yourself, share who you are, engage these kids, have fun. So yeah, that really, uh, to me, that's kind of the essence of what we're, we're trying to get at. Well, I think it sounds wonderful. Thank you for sharing that example. If people want to learn more about intergenerational programming uh, and some of your work, what, where would you point them? Oh, well, I like to think that uh, intergenerational studies is, is a movement. Maybe you don't want to quote me on that because I'm sure somebody will say, maybe I don't know the definition of a movement, but it kind of is because it's like a thousand points of light. You have people discovering intergenerational strategies to help to intervene uh, in their lives and into, in their learning in schools and uh, the time they spend in the community uh, to come together in meaningful ways. So it really is. And then there are networks popping up in states all over the country. We have a national network, Generations United. We have, uh, we have an international network, the Intergenerational Consortium of Intergenerational Programs. So um, on my end, uh, what I've been doing has been uh, focusing on uh, intergenerational environments. How do we work with people? How do we move that forward? So um, several colleagues and I recently, we wrote a book on intergenerational contact zones. And the subtitle is Place-Based Strategies for Promoting Social Inclusion and Belonging. Uh, so we edit it. We have over 25 chapters of these examples from around the world of, of creative intergenerational initiatives, creating places that bring people together. And I'm one of four editors, including Lang Lang Fang in Singapore, uh, Mariano Sanchez in Spain, and Jaco Hoffman in South Africa. So we have people from we're four continents, which is actually a good strategy for selling a book because they have friends all around the world. <laughs> But anyway, uh, Rutledge, took a chance, <laughs> Rutledge took a chance on us. And uh, so we have this uh, uh, interesting um, uh, book out. And inter- in a nutshell, intergenerational contact zones, um, they're spatial focus points for generations to come together, to meet, to interact, to build relationships, and sometimes to work uh, jointly to try to influence their environments together. Um, and it's a tool three kinds of tools. It's a conceptual tool to be able to dig in and understand a particular setting, uh, not just in terms of its physical space, but in terms of uh, its uh, psychological context, political context, historical context, uh, socioeconomic context. Um, So it's good for studying complex multi-generational community settings. And it's also a programming tool because we could look at how do we design these things and engage people in a participatory way. And it's a design tool. 
for generating innovative ideas for developing these meeting spaces. So at any rate, that's the latest, and we hope it's the first volume. We, uh, a lot of people are quite uh, interested in uh, looking at ways to create excellent ICZ spaces, intergenerational contact zone spaces. Well, and I'll mention that uh, members of the American Planning Association receive a discount on all books produced by Routledge because of our publishing partnership. So um, thanks for telling us more about that book. And thanks so much, Matt, um, for spending time with us and uh, teaching us a little bit about intergenerational studies. Oh, thank you so much, Megan. I've really enjoyed our time together. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. Check out the Planning Magazine article inspired by this conversation called Fitting Together the Needs of an Aging Population, plus so much more at planning.org planning. Listen to the other interviews in the series on planning for an aging population at planning.org podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the show at Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts.